Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseOfPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're going back in time to help us understand the modern era. And joining us to talk about this is Dr. Jeff Banka. If you've been listening for a long time, you'll remember Dr. Banka. He's been on the podcast a few times, and all of those are centered around paleobotany, ancient plant lineages, and what they can tell us about our modern era. And today we're looking at what fossilized pollen, especially as it relates to plant stress, can tell us about what's going on with our flora today and how that might be useful in understanding disturbances and stress. Dr. Benka is awesome at telling science stories, so I'll let him do that. But first, I have a message from our friends over at Radiolab. Hey, there's a bunch of really great stuff here to suck on. What? On Radiolab? We're going up. These trees are huge. Into the treetops. It was like being a detective. To chase a mystery. There's something going on up here. What's what's about to happen? Oh my gosh. And stumble into a secret garden. This is amazing. I know, I know. Whoa. In the sky. Forests on forests. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right. I love Radiolab. If you're not listening to that podcast, you must start. Go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. But in the meantime, let's go learn about what fossil pollen and stress can tell us about modern ecosystems and stress. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jeff Benka. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Jeff Banco, welcome back. It is always so great to get you on this podcast. I feel like I geek out every time you reach out. But uh, for those that haven't listened to your previous episodes, I think it's good we start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, I'm a plant scientist and a horticulturist that really likes to swim on the weekends. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I really... I'm sort of immersed in all sorts of aspects of plants in terms of uh, growing them as someone who's been a, just an Uber geek growing up, but also <laughs> someone who is also really studying plants of the deep past. So I'm a, I'm an experimental paleobotanist if, if there is such a thing. <laughs> um, so I, I try and do my best to try and create metaphorical time machines through doing <laughs> experiments on early diverging plants and, and things that, that have long histories as lineages. I love that because you've kind of couched it in a nice elevator pitch that makes sense to people not in the field. But if you've read your work, you're like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what you do. You nailed it. So that's uh, a rare moment when you can package something in a nice pitchable way. And it actually does hit the nail on the head. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a, uh, the research and sort of interests that I have are all over the place. I, I certainly have a hard time reining myself in. And I think paleobotany was such a great area for me to go into sure. because it was able to rein in a lot of just all these sorts of different aspects I was interested in because, I mean, I guess it's plants and ecosystems through time. What, what isn't encompassed in that? Yeah. So. I can have excuses to go, you know, play with volcanoes or play with cockroaches or, you know, or plants or whatever you want or dinosaurs. It's, you know, it's a really, it's a nice and really integrated, you know, extremely interconnected field. It's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, really, when it comes to paleo, it's most of Earth's history. We're, We're living in a very short time period in comparison to all of the time. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just a snapshot that we see right now. And the fossil record gives us such a context to sort of take in what's here today. And I don't know, I, I many times I just kind of think about what what it's going to look like in the future if we're, we're digging the fossil record going back. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's who's sort of had that that notion, but it's a strange world that we're living in right now. And there's yeah. so many major changes on every front that, gosh, I mean, it probably is going to make some of these major mass extinctions I study look like child's play in some uh, ways. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot coming from someone with your expertise and perspectives on things. And I got to say, it's like perspectives like yours have so much real time applicability. And I mean, that's not just the doom and gloom, what we're doing to the planet. But I mean, your insights into what it takes to grow lycopods and, and why they like nutrient poor, cruddy, almost nutrientless soils has changed the way of I've approached growing plants. And it all comes from that sort of context and and what i love is like it's sort of the metaphor of like every time you crack a rock open you never know what new stories you're going to be able to tell and how they might change the way we look at that future as you mentioned absolutely yeah that's exactly how i would feel it's a great metaphor so the last time you were on we uh i highly recommend everyone go listen to that episode but we talked about a really cool breakthrough you and your colleagues had looking at one of the most intense extinction events on this planet and using plant fossils to kind of tell a story or paint a picture of what some of those causes have been. And the reason we reconnected today, why you're back on, is that you've expanded on that work in a big way. So all of this kind of centers around pollen. And that to me is really interesting because like, I mean, people are allergic to it. They're thinking about it in some form or another, but the way you and your colleagues look at pollen blows my mind every time. I mean, I know what I'm going into when I read your papers, but it, it never ceases to amaze me how much I get knocked back at the re- like how relevant it is. Oh, thanks. Yeah, pollen is is wild and it's it's something that I I have I get hay fever, so I certainly <laughs> can identify with many people uh. on that. In the same way that uh, as a hobby, I, I like breed tarantulas, but at the same time I I grew up a diehard arachnophobe. So oh, I, I have this strange sort of <laughs> ebb and pull where I, I don't, I can't even explain really why I sort of jump down the rabbit holes I do, but um, <laughs> it's, there's always sort of a, I don't know, a, a balance to them. <laughs> but yeah, pollen is, pollen is probably the last thing I expected to dive into of, of all things, but it ended up just sort of answering, or, I mean, I, I guess I can't say it answers questions necessarily, mm. but it, it gives these sorts of new perspectives of how to look at the world. Right. And it it's almost like abstract art when you're working with it. I'm also a scientific illustrator and artist on the side. So it's nice. something that I absolutely, I, I just can't keep away from a microscope if someone puts it <laughs> in front of me. So yeah. I mean, I'm sure many of my listeners can emphasize with that, whether they have access readily to one or not, but it is interesting to think about pollen in the paleobotanical perspective because, you know, a lot of people listening will probably have been to a museum or seen a fossil plant. And generally we think of like a leaf fossil or if you're very, very lucky, a flower fossil or something to that effect. But pollen, you know, it's small. You need a microscope to see living pollen. How the heck do you go about studying pollen in the fossil record, even before we get into how you utilize it to understand things? Sure. It, it, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of prep work. Um, a lot of my sort of work hasn't necessarily cracked into the actual fossil pond itself, but I've been building on a, a literature and 
you know, a legacy of, of what we call paleopalynologists, people hmm. who study fossilized pollen and palynology is that study we use for uh, pollen spores. And, and really, I think expands to, it, it's sort of the, the study of almost like dust-like <laughs> life, if yeah. you will. And, yeah. you know, it can, it can be pretty encompassing, but uh, going into the fossil record, you really, you, you have tremendous power with using pollen and part of it comes down to how you sample it. So you have to basically go out to certain types of uh, certain types of sedimentary rock that will bear pollen, say, you know, something that comes from a lake bed where it was very acidic and low oxygen. Um, if you hit sort of one of these veins of, of these sedimentary layers and you're able to sample, you basically find an, uh, a sample where you have minimal oxygen sort of uh, exposure within the rock. You, you basically have to clear it out and try and get a really fresh piece of rock. And when we talk about the sample size, we might be looking at something that's smaller than a walnut in terms oh, of the chunks. Oh. And from that, you can, you can reconstruct kilometers of wow. ecosystems. So it's this tremendous, tremendous power to this incredibly small amount. What, what seems like, you know, should be nothing, you know, in yeah. a Ziploc bag when you bring it back to the lab, but the pollen basically is pollen and spores just blow in from all sorts of areas and they, they have all sorts of different biases too. So, hmm. you know, when you look at, um, at one of these sorts of assemblages, you're looking at not only pollen over space, but also over time sometimes. Hmm. So you might have uh, quite a period where pollen is raining into a layer of a lake and then gets buried. So one of the things that we have to think about is, as paleopalynologists is that we're not just seeing one little snapshot and, and it's very rare in the fossil record to actually be able to say, okay, this is exactly at this moment in time. There's, there's so many complications to dating, yeah. knowing what you're looking at and how, what we call time transgressive or basically the span of time, even a rock layer is as you hack into a hill. Um, it's almost like you could be walking along a seashore and have it preserved in the rock record and you might be walking along time and also walking along space as you move along a quarry. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot to unpack. And I think, you know, as people that, again, are just dabbling in this as an interest or like going to a museum, it's like, oh, we, we know what's going on. We've dated these things. But yeah, I, I think it, I saw a really cool lecture from a paleo artist, Brian Ang, shout out to him, uh, where he was discussing just that in one set of strata where you are like, yeah, this seems like it's one ecosystem, but this is potentially millions of years of time transgressing. And it's very, I, I didn't, I guess it, it kind of hit me because I didn't realize how difficult it can be to get the resolution of like, when was this? When did this happen? And how much time is separated between this little tiny layer and that little tiny layer? Oh gosh, yeah. And it's, <laughs> sometimes you're dealing with with time spans that are longer than human evolution. And <laughs> And, and that's the error margin Ooh. is, you know, many times that. And so, you know, that, that might not be the best sort of constrained place to, to find things. But unfortunately, with some of these periods of geologic time, when, you know, when the really big events that a lot of scientists are interested in, especially as we look into the future, say uh, major environmental changes, mass extinctions, these time periods get really hotly contentious because you have geologists and geochronologists and geochemists and a whole series of, of professions of people who really focus on trying to date and really understand how time is working. Hmm. But it's 
critically important, especially <laughs> for if you're trying to reconstruct an ecosystem collapse during, let's say, an asteroid impact or you know, massive volcanism or something like that, understanding where you are in time versus all of these other events that are going on is, is pretty much make it or break it. If you get your date wrong, you're blown out of the water as a scientist in some <laughs> ways, which, which happens all the time. I mean, it's not that, you know, we, we, we bounce back as, yes. as curious individuals, but you know, <laughs> in paleontology, you just have to have this very humble sense that you don't, you don't always know what's there. And for me, I, I find that one of the most enriching things about being in the field is mm. that I, I never can pretend I know exactly what I'm talking about, which, you know, to many people might sound weird or, or such, but I, I find comfort in, in not knowing and, and acknowledging that I don't always know. Uh, that is a very respectable trait and, uh, you should be applauded for, uh, admitting to that. Cause yeah, I, it is, it's humbling would be putting it nice uh, to know just how wrong you can be and to find that comfort zone in the sciences. And I think, you know, popular media does a great disservice to that idea of like debate doesn't mean you're totally wrong and the science is wrong. It's it's a very healthy thing that makes science stronger. We rely on that process. I mean, that's what peer review is all about. Absolutely. And, and hopefully through a lot of exposing a lot of different viewpoints, I mean, you you can get closer to what may have happened yeah. um, with, with whatever caveats are there. I mean, the, in many cases, like looking at the geologic record, and I mean, it applies to science in general, as you, you were just saying, um, we, we can't necessarily go back. So we're always using this sort of uh, circumstantial evidence um, <laughs> when we reconstruct these, these things. So, you know, I, I, I always think that I'll probably be long dead and there will be people looking at these events with very, very different lenses than, than I would have ever had. Um, but maybe they'll be able to find something of use in, in works or stumblings that I made as I was going through <laughs> this this strange world. It's all is basically my hope. Right, right. And I think that's it bears fruit because like that's how we got to be scientists, right? We built on the work of the past and and you refine it, you learn which parts can stick and which parts don't. And that's all part of the learning process is admitting you were wrong and moving forward with the best knowledge available at the time. But thinking of like where you sit in the science that you do, what I admire most and what gets me really jazzed about your work is this idea that you can use things in the past, often extremely distant in the past, and look at what's going on today and make sort of connections there. They might not be 100% overlap, but there is something to glean from all of this. And again, to emphasize, you're not working in the Miocene, the Eocene, not the Cretaceous, Jurassic, Jurassic or Triassic. Like a lot of your work goes way farther back than even that. But what gives me the goosebumps side of it is to think that what you were seeing hundreds of millions of years ago, there's applications that ecology might not have changed that much, or at least the rules that govern the players have changed, but the rules maybe haven't so much. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge theme in a lot of the work that I do is that yeah, the players have changed indeed, but <laughs> the the laws that govern nature have not necessarily. And there's always, I always think back to like looking at, at evolution in general with different lineages, let's say animals. I mean, if if folks are familiar with, with dinosaurs and, and archosaurs and reptiles, one of the things I, I think about is um, 
there were times where crocodiles and their relatives were the dominant land creatures and actually occupied mammalian like niches. They basically had rapid growth. The bone histology shows they grew fast. They got big and they, they ran, there were some that looked like greyhounds, um, back in, I think probably around the Triassic, I could, someone will probably shoot me from this field, but, but during the same time, what's really ironic when you think about say the Triassic, when you've got these land crocodilian like things, maybe crocodilomorphs, um, there are animals in the water that look spitting image, uh, just like crocodiles that were a totally different lineage. <laughs> That I, I don't remember exactly where they fought. They might be related to, to pterosaurs, Jeez. but are these crocodile-like things that could get, you know, maybe like 20 feet long and had the armored scutes and the snout of a croc, but they actually changed, they they created the same exact morphology using different parts of the skull. So maybe the pre-maxilla move forward is wow. like you ever seen Beetlejuice and when they sort of stretch their faces out at the yes. end of two characters, that's what a fight is. It's that's basically wild. moving the lips out and, um, and having that be your mouth, whereas a crocodile. So the nostrils are right up by its, its eyes, like a dolphin. Hmm. And then the nostrils of a crocodile are way out on the tip of the snout. Weird. So when you think about these worlds of the past, they had very, very similar players. They may have even looked like confusingly <laughs> similar if you were there, but you, you just would have to look a little bit and be like, oh, that's not right. The yeah. crocs don't have dolphin nostrils or killer whale <laughs> nostrils on their eyes. That's not, yeah, that's just not it. But that sort of idea is that there are these laws governing these sorts of parallel evolutionary scenarios. And what's great is plants are the ultimate sort of shape shifters. They, <laughs> they basically can just, they're like, oh, well, you know, I, I've got a stress. I've got a way of dealing with this in, you know, a very limited genetic toolkit. Even if they don't have a large genome, they can really do a lot. Yeah. So you basically are, are, are like, well, I've, I've only got this. I've maybe got five body plans I can play with or so. I don't remember exactly what uh, Nicholas's sort of scenario was, but there's, <laughs> there's only a few different iterations of how a plant can shape its body. And then there's like, thousands and thousands upon thousands of permutations of how it can branch or <laughs> or look which is what we love about the beauty and as yeah. a horticulturist i did yeah. yeah it's those connections where you you start to think about like what do we go into a garden and just go oh that's nice and then okay why does it look that way okay there's evolution there what, what and like what you just kind of described there with convergent evolution it's like when that crab story came out when everyone's like everything turns into a crab eventually. I'm like, you realize that's not the only place convergent evolution happens, right? <laughs> it's a wild process, but it's all coming back to this idea of like, what are the stressors of an environment and how does that shape the sort of quote unquote optimal way to achieve any sort of position in a niche space. But you mentioned stress and I'm happy you said it because it was going to get there. Eventually stress is a running theme throughout a lot of your work trying to understand how to get a proxy for stress, to understand how that plant or that ecosystem it was living in might have been stressed. So why stress in the context of the bigger picture? Thanks for asking. Uh, with stress really has a big impact on, on how, how things came to be in so many ways. <laughs> so when we talk about, I, I sort of grew up reading mass extinction literature, and we always have many ideas of how things happened and how ecosystems changed the way they did. And 
I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's, you know, turned on the television and seen reconstructions of, of Tyrannosaurus Rex getting pelted by fireballs and <laughs> things like that during you know, an asteroid impact or, you know, really recent movie, uh, Don't Look Up, which was really cool. But at the same time, as, as someone, when I went into the field of paleobiology, I really was, was blown away that how little we actually knew about what happened during these intervals of time. Hmm. And yet it's so pivotal. So understanding how and what kinds of stresses were happening in the deep past really is how we're going to be able to reconstruct e how ecosystems respond to major perturbations to the whole um, biosphere, if you will. And that's something that going forward, if we can understand how, how certain stresses influence on very large timescales and over large spaces, we can actually have some predictive power in the future of, hey, with, with all these different environmental changes or pollutants we put in the atmosphere, how are ecosystems going to evolve? And, and so part of what I've been finding that's crazy is that we don't have really, we, we basically don't have any way to see stress in the fossil record, which hmm. is crazy. Yeah. Because if you think about it, I mean, we've had these mass extinctions where you've almost had the end of the world happen. <laughs> and literally everything's just gone but that's exactly it is that from a, a paleontologist lens and many times looking at these from an animal perspective there are animals there in one strata or one layer of the rock and then they're gone hmm. the next and we we know something must have happened and probably something bad but but what and how and and that's where we end up getting many different ideas that can be very creative um you know for explaining why things disappear but stress is really, in my view, it's it's the it's the how, it's the it's the mechanism of what happened and it tells the actual story. Wow. I, I'm really happy you spelled that out so so nicely for us because yeah, I, I mean even myself, I take it for granted, right? We know something bad happened. Okay, what was that bad thing? Okay. How do we if we can't even predict it, how do we prevent it? Right. But you know, when you get into ecology, you understand that like even something as quick as the emerald ash borer, it didn't happen overnight. It happened extremely fast within our lifetime, but you see signs of that. And I'm sure as a paleontologist on any level, the, the lack of resolution you can really have for those distinct moments is very frustrating, but also keeps you going out every day. Just keep hammering away at the rocks. Um, but yeah, to kind of try to pin down these moments to be able to use all of this wonderful information of life having experienced extinction events and and the ones you study specifically the permian mass extinction possibly a complete erase you know the closest earth has ever come to being sterilized right yeah yeah the end permian in particular is is a really nasty and gnarly event and it's very mysterious in so many ways because we, we see very odd patterns with it. And, and with that sort of um, idea of the end Permian, we basically are looking at this disappearance of much of many lineages of, of organisms. Um, but the really interesting part about it and what allows it to be something that paleobotanists can dig into is that the plants don't necessarily all die out right away. Hmm. And that's actually fortunate for <laughs> us is that the animals just disappear in these major pulses, you know, in the marine realm, you just see a lot of these shelly sorts of invertebrates go extinct. And then you have terrestrial extinctions as well with animals on land. 
but the plants seem to watch this happen. They're spectators of this entire event. And as they're doing it, they're exposed to whatever all those animals were, and they actually are tough enough to survive it, which for, for us is really fortunate. So one of the ways that, that really we look into this is delving into the pollen record. Because right. the end the permian is this, this major uh, mystery for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that there's, there's not a ton of places in the world where you can get rocks this old that have really high resolution. So we're, we're limited to a couple sites across latitudes. Hmm. And um, with that, that means we have to use whatever, whatever evidence in the fossil record, like a murder mystery, is going to yield the most sort of information about it. And it turns out that pollen spores have a wealth of information based on that sort of aspect that you don't need a lot of sediment to get a huge coverage. <laughs> going back to your walnut example, right? Yeah. But that's exciting. And that's really where the last time we talked meets where we're talking today is, is what you learned from looking at the pollen record at the end Permian, but then looking forward and saying, okay, how can we use this? We know it's useful. How do we move forward? And so what's really cool is taking extant modern lineages and exposing them to various things just to see what happens with their pollen. So talk us through that. I mean, what are you looking for and how do you go about replicating what you're finding in the fossil record just to see what kind of stresses brings that out in, in our modern day living examples? Sure. So one of the major lineages of plants that felt the end Permian were a group that includes modern gymnosperms. So this is conifers and their allies today. There's conifers, ginkgos, cycads, and Italians today. These are seed plants and they produce a specific type of pollen that they've maintained since the Permian very closely actually in many respects. And it's called a saccate pollen grain. And these are basically, if, if you remember in introductory chemistry classes, if you played with uh, oxygen molecules, they're like little <laughs> oxygen molecules nice. or Mickey Mouse heads. Yeah. Um, it's basically like this central body, which carries the microgametophyte, the uh, micro uh, male sort of plant. And the outer casing of the pollen is basically like, I don't know, a, a flying saucer or a spaceship. That's this, this really, really extremely hard a resistant sort of shell that the plant can be preserved in as it gets launched high up in the atmosphere, flies up in the stratosphere, and then maybe it gets blown down to another plant. And it in these saccate grains, they have these two structures most of the time. Sometimes they have more uh, called, called sacci. And these are sponges sort of inflated regions that are modifications of the outer pollen wall. Hmm. And these sacci uh, these saccate pollen are really prominent in wind dispersed pollen, which is really a, one of the chief pollen types that's preserved in the fossil record. Nice. Today, we've got about something like, I think, 375 different species of conifers that produce these saccate pollen grains that are very similar morphologically to the dominant seed plants that were in the Permian forests. And as a result, I sort of was looking at, at this as an opportunity to go, well, you know, we have all these, these conifers that are growing today that seem to be producing similar sorts of polynomorphs. Um, let's, let's figure out what happens in today's conifers to see if we can ground some of what we see in the past. And one of the things that, that happened in a previous study that, that we discussed um, in this podcast was during the end Permian, we see as this very weird pattern of repeated basic 
basically almost like global forest collapses. Hmm. Um, at least in the high and, and possibly the low latitudes, you see these, these pulses of deforestation in these fossilized palm records. And these, these seed plants seem to get hit hard. Hmm. And as they do, in some intervals, you actually can see these you know, basically uh, a proliferation of what look like mutated pollen grains in the fossil record. And that trend really alarmed a number of people <laughs> in this field because they're like, what the heck is going on here? Right. Uh, people had actually recorded the same types of pollen grains at Chernobyl. Oh. And they're going, this is really not good. <laughs> Whatever is happening to all these animals huh. is really bad if the plants are doing this. Wow. So there were a number of other places where you could see these sorts of grains. And if you basically, I, I started digging more and more in the literature, trying to figure out, okay, well, where do these strange malformations we see in the, in the fossil record, where do we see them today? And it mm. turns out there, there's all sorts of places they occur. Um, some plants today will produce malformations and these morphological deviations just because they, they have a, a disruption or a mistake in meiosis or a disruption in their, their pollen development. And, and that happens, and, but we need to know how often that happens. Uh, how often do plants sort of have these blips, these genetic defects that manifest in morphology? And the power with this possibly is that if you have a disruption to the, the basically pollen uh, structure through a genetic change, you can actually then go back in the fossil record and infer possibly that there's certain genetic changes that happened looking at a fossil. Wow. which is a very rare thing to do. Um, yeah. I mean, geez, the resolution. It's funny because you start off going, we see a weird pattern. What could possibly explain it? You do some modern day experiments with living things. You figure out, oh, okay, this can possibly do it. This one thing we've tested, that gives us an indication that something bad was happening. But then, the, the again, once you start to peel back the layers, you're like, this has extremely wide applications. And what's cool although I don't know enough about paleofloras during that time period, but you're studying this in, in lineages that are much older than angiosperms. I mean, some of these lineages go back quite a ways. So the level of inference you can get from past, present, and, and you know, back and forth between those two things is super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was kind of mind-blowing to me as I was putting a few things together, just reading a lot of the historic literature and then realizing that there were these major gaps in knowledge that hmm. really needed to be filled. But if they were filled, we might be able to jump forward it, like in bounds and leaps to being able to infer what's going on in these plants in the past. And one of the, some of the critical areas where there were gaps in knowledge was how, just how often do modern conifers, uh, which produce these, these types of grains, how often do they produce them mm. under near ambient conditions? So interesting, happy conifer, happy landscape, metaphorically saying, <laughs> right. uh, because there, there really is always some sort of stress that plants are dealing with on, you know, and I guess stress is really more of e ecologists define stress pretty explicitly, um, usually a challenge to metabolic and physiological and developmental um, sort of processes. So there, mm. there certainly are these sort of hard ground definitions for stress. Sure. But just seeing how often these plants produce them was a big, it was a big question. And, hmm. you know, if there, there certainly is a possibility that maybe pollen is so phenotypically or 
basically in shape and morphology so variable naturally during when the going's good, then maybe this all doesn't mean anything. And we just <laughs> haven't looked, you know, and that that's a big threat. And it's something that needed to, there's a stone that needed to be overturned. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of went forward into a, a, a direction of a study that was going to be probably seemingly pretty boring when I started <laughs> it. I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go frolic around, go to botanical gardens and oh, sample really happy trees and see <laughs> what their pollen looks like. And I, I ended up, I mean, I probably went through maybe like 46,000 pollen grains, just Jeez. one by one, like tallying and, oh, and looking man. at, and <laughs> That was a long sort of stretch, but, but that sort of work in the lab ultimately gave this, you know, we, we basically looked at 14 different genera of wow. conifers that had saccate grains and they were in two different families of conifers, Pinaceae okay. and Podocarpaceae, nice. because we've got these two lineages that have them. There is a very, there's a possibility that this saccate morphology may have evolved independently in these two ages because they diverged in the paleozoic pretty much wow so we extinction has called out so many of the lineages of seed plants out there that we're really we have two sort of conifer islands that are closest to each other today but may not be close at all when <laughs> right. you look at all the extinct things out there <laughs> yes and that's another great perspective that you get from the paleo botanical background is just that level of yeah this is an echo of the diversity that once existed. And I love this idea that maybe this pattern we saw isn't a pattern at all. We're just picking out something that's a background level and having to test that. What is that background level? I mean, it seems so inherent, but until you ask that question, you go, oh yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, for, for the field that we're in, uh, that I, that I look at mass extinctions, it's, it's pretty common that, there will be sort of a breakout study or a breakthrough idea that comes out. And as, as soon as that comes out, sometimes they'll get tra traction. Sometimes it'll get buried and nobody will really care, <laughs> which is very common for a lot of extinction hypotheses. And science in general. <laughs> yeah. Science yeah. in general, of course. <laughs> but um, what, what, what ends up happening is uh, when something gets adopted, the ball kind of starts going and sometimes the carriage gets put in front of the horse <laughs> and, and people start going, oh, well, I can use this, this new tool to look at my section or my site. And, oh, I, I, I think I've got an extinction layer. Why don't I just dive in and do this analysis? And wow, I see the signal that, that everyone else described. Sometimes you have to just take a step back and go, okay, well, that's the really exciting stuff. That's the really fun <laughs> stuff to like get in there but we really do need to like put a pause before we really dive into a new idea and really ground it if, yeah. if possible. And that's the, sometimes that that's our work of course in science is, is not always the, the easiest to publish for a lot of reasons. <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily what, you know, if, if you're going for a doctorate or, you know, some major sort of uh, position or you want to be a professor, it might not be the most exciting thing to be like, ah, I want to study the boring stuff because I, I need to know what the reference of context is. It, it's yeah. very important, but in this day and age when there's there's a lot out there to study, it's it's a hard thing to justify sometimes. True. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, it's time and time again, the common theme in all plant work is lack of funding. And yes. that is also a huge constraint to what does get done and what we want to do versus what we can do. But I can see sort of two lines of reasoning evolving in how this paper came out. Either you get this background level and you're like, oh, no, this is just the thing that happens because they're producing so many gosh darn pollen grains. But then the other 
side of it goes, no, there's a pattern to this. And then you got to the fun opportunity to go, what kind of patterns and why, what causes these malformations. And I, I love this idea of getting sort of a fingerprint for different types of stressors potentially, or at least opening the door to being able to ask those questions. I mean, was that really the motivating factor? I know it comes out in the paper, but yeah. It, it ended up being something that we didn't, we, we stumbled on. Nice. Kind of like originally <laughs> we, we, we did the same thing when, with our forest sterility just, you know, with the ozone weakening causing forest sterility, that was another sort of like, just stumbled on this, like, whoa, if you knock out the ozone layer, you could sterilize the world's like gymnosperm forest. So the whole boreal zone could go sterile, Uh-oh. Um, which is terrifying and something that we never really looked into. <laughs> if Whoops. the Montreal protocol hadn't happened, what yeah. could have been happening to all of our timber trees? But this was just like that. This was this sort of thing that I went in. I, I originally just thought this was going to be a really, again, it was going to be this small little hiccup of a project. And in fact, it was so it, it was so seemingly boring when I went into it, even though it was a passion project of sure. mine because I'm a geek. Um, <laughs> I I basically was like, this is this project was easy for me to do because it was free for me to go up and just sample conifer, start sampling cones that are are nearby botanic garden. Nice because we had living in in Berkeley at the time, we had so many different lineages of tropical temperate and some tropical conifers growing side by side in the exact same latitude and longitude um, that we could see how trees all respond side by side, just <laughs> planted out there fully mature. And what ended up happening was as we, what we looked into the data more, we ended up going back and revisiting our sort of doomsday um, ozone weakening experiment data. So we, we had hundreds of thousands of pollen grades sort of already studied that we hadn't published all of them and we went back to the data and started digging and we compared what we saw under ultraviolet radiation levels 13 times the modern atmosphere and we saw this crazy pattern where it turned out that the conifers that we observed in in the botanical gardens produced a very low frequency almost all the species out there with the two exceptions very, very low frequency of malformations. So less than 3% of their pollen yields. Wow. Well, looking at the, the ozone weakening, you, you were getting just these much, much significantly higher levels of the malformations. But the crazy part was that when we looked at and broke down what types of malformations the trees were producing, UV completely distorted wow. how the trees produce these malformations. And it basically we even saw this gradient. So as we increased the dosage, the trees produced more and more and more of a certain type of malformation. And you just never get that ratio in these natural growing populations of conifers. Wow. So we found this weird fingerprint that ozone weakening might have. And if we see this type of malformation suddenly appearing in droves, which we do see quite a bit of it at the end Permian, it might actually tell us that we could have an ozone weakening event, for instance, hmm. but there's certainly other, many other sorts of stresses that can disrupt uh, what we call microsporogenesis. And that is the, uh, the process of producing pollen. So the thought of with this, or at least the sort of aha moment was that, well, you know, maybe there's these other sorts of stresses out there like acid rain or mercury deposition, which comes from volcanoes as well mm. as industrial pollution. 
that there are, are widely hypothesized to have been present during these massive volcanic events in, in the mass extinctions. But we might be able to actually find that different stresses could produce or induce certain types of malformations. That is heavy um, and, and wide-reaching implications. I mean, first and foremost, my God, going over that many pollen grains... I don't blame you for going back and be like, we're using this. I don't care. I did this work. We're using it. Yes. But also, I mean, just thinking of, you know, what we're doing to the planet and and what it took back then, you know, then being a very big picture uh, to do that. And I mean, we're talking global processes that now humans are apparently really good at mimicking. And it just, you know, you kind of hinted at Chernobyl being in there, too. And yeah, okay, the processes that generate these disturbances are vastly different than they once were, but it just goes to show you that like, oh, we're not that numerous, we're not having that big, like, no, we are having global, potentially catastrophic effects on the biosphere if we can mimic this in a big way. That's scary. (laughs) It's terrifying in ways. I don't want to be a sort of doomsday or, or alarmist sort of scientist, but if you study mass extinctions, I mean, you, you are dealing with the end of the world. I mean, it's it's really, you can't, you, you can put a flowery spin on it, but, <laughs> but that is what it is. You're studying right. is the, the ends of the world and how they come about. But it's it's alarming, as you say, that the same sorts of patterns you can see in the pre-industrial world that really had dramatic consequences globally for Earth's life and the evolutionary trajectory of lineages that are around today are being mimicked by modern technologies and modern uh, consequences of evolving technologies. Yeah, yeah. And then going back to the convergent evolution side of things, I mean, Pinaceae, Podocarpaceae, these are old lineages, but by no means the oldest. And and of course, there are levels of sort of convergent evolution in their strategies and their morphologies, micro and macro. But you know, here is a completely different lineage than what you would have been studying in the Permian. And yet we're still seeing similar things happening through these processes as well. I mean, those moments where you connect biology through that time span is just bewildering to say the least. It, it was really amazing. And this was, this is one of those systems that ended up as we, we dug deeper and deeper. I mean, it, it really was this crazy rabbit hole. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it turned into like, I guess, a Donnie Darko rabbit hole because <laughs> it was going into time also. And so I ended up like getting these points. Well, uh, basically, you know, I, I'm a horticulturist by day, paleobotanist by night. I, you know, I'd go home and I'd, I'd be thinking about this literature at work and I would go home and I start reading more and more and more from different fields. And I ended up having to just dig into, I mean, I ended up in some really interesting fields that like never, you know, papers that just don't get cited at all. Uh, I was delving a lot into Siberian research for a a big part of this, looking at the field of cytology, looking at how basically pollen mutates, uh, looking at basically chromosome counts and things like that, and then trying to piece together how that affects the morphology. And in that process, I mean, that that ended up being really an interesting thing because we we ended up seeing that there were these trends in the modern uh, areas of Siberia where they're afflicted by uh, warming, precocious mm. warming of the in fall and drying and and also industrial pollution and heavy metal toxicity and even 
you know, rust and all sorts of pathogens that are hmm. attacking these trees. So there's some of these trees that are being sampled that have maybe three or four different things happening to them synchronously Oof. that were totally anomalous, each of them alone. And they were pumping out these pollen grains up in, you know, Arctic Siberia in botanic gardens up there. Um, but we ended up finding that there was, there were some trends that we can see in, in fossil morphology that may give us a suggestion of what sorts of disruptions developmentally actually happened, which wow. is crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, literally these threads that you get on with these sorts of questions, I mean, it spans time, it spans geographic areas and, and just areas of interest you'd never really pictured yourself going into when you start searching these things out. And, and it is, I mean, to kind of get it down to more of the micro scale, I mean, you're dealing with very sensitive parts of a plant's life cycle and also extremely vital parts of a plant's life cycle. If you're messing with reproduction, you're messing with regeneration, you're messing with the next generation's potential, uh, whether it has it or not, depending on the stresses. Exactly. And that's really where a lot of this sort of cytology, like research, this whole body of research was showing that you could even sometimes, you know, the, this, this process of microsporogenesis is probably one of the most vulnerable of the entire plant's entire life cycle, because not only are, are you dealing with these sort of very sensitive processes, but any slight disruption uh, during some of the stages of meiosis could change your genome. <laughs> it, it, it totally changes your genetic makeup Oops. and it doesn't take a heck of a lot. So there was a study that was done in uh, the Czech Republic uh, back, I think in the late sixties. And they basically looked at a pinion pine that was grown in a potted pinion pines that were grown in, in the Czech Republic. And they, they experienced these anomalous freezing temperatures at the wrong time of year that usually pinion pine wouldn't be experiencing. Hmm. So there were these, these periods where it turned out that if you had only an hour or two hours of this temperature of just a few degrees Celsius below uh, a certain threshold, you would generate these polyploid pollen grains and just these, <sighs> genome duplicated poly like you know it's completely frankenstein wow. <laughs> gametes yes. and so these these grains would have unequal chromosome numbers and then they would also be malformed too <laughs> oh boy i mean yeah you hear about a chernobyl you hear about mass volcanic eruptions heavy metal pollution in the air and and even down to uv radiation i mean these are alarming sort of what, what gets all of us should be like, oh, crap, what? But then you hear something like that where anomalous freezing, cooling, I mean, things that aren't necessarily like on surface value that toxic or scary, but still having these effects. And when you think of like the variability we're introducing into our systems every time we're pumping another couple hundred thousand tons of CO2 into the air or methane and, and just the ways we create disturbance on the landscape, I mean, that's super like that's a huge red flag and so when you think of like what you set out to do and the scope of inference that you thought you had and then to hear something like this where you're connecting threads that happened back in the 60s you know what i mean this isn't like you're on the the pulse of like a 2022 new paper just came out of siberia kind of thing i mean this has got to be one of those things where you're like oh we've uncovered something that is widely applicable and then the question becomes which stress do you want to look at yeah Bingo. Whew. It's, it's really that. And that's a whole 
opens a huge can of worms and really we're hoping Dang. that there will be some more some more studies out that can sort of look at these other stresses for and, sure and that's the kind of point of this kind of baseline work right is it's it's easy to be like yeah we just don't have it so we got it but then it's that door opening experience so what do you kind of envision this work like what are the next steps because that's a big part of any research is like future work should include and and I can imagine like what you've just unlocked in your head as as someone that really enjoys this and is it like spends time geeking out about this stuff is just oh my god <laughs> what have we just done? Yeah, I I sometimes I'm kicking myself because <laughs> again they always say that uh, you you open up more questions than you answer uh, when you're when you're going about in science and that's certainly true of any experiment or study. I, I would say that this one opened up a whole realm of boy. There's there's a lot of different stresses that need to be looked at, mm -hmm. and um, I would say some of I guess if I were to prioritize, I would say probably acid rain and heavy metal pollution are mm -hmm. the two next sort of biggies that need to be looked at because they're really they're a really hot topic and they're really popular to publish on right now in extinctions. And believe it or not, <laughs> again popularity in science really kind of drives the forge of where where everything goes. And so you usually before things go in, you know, far in a direction where people are saying, well, we, we already know that this is what probably happened. You, you want to be able to <laughs> something and they go not so fast yeah. Um, yeah. because that, that could be something. So there, there are papers coming out there saying that, oh, we're seeing heavy metal induced malformations and in spores. So I'm like, wow, how do you know? Because, uh, first of all, this is a like pod and being one of the few people who can grow these in the world, I know you haven't actually looked at it. So, so tell me, it, it's those, it's those sorts of things where, you know, it, and I don't mean to be catty in that No, way. no, no, I get it. Uh, you know, you, you end up again, sort of the, the buggy or the, the carriage in front of the horse. And, and I find myself being in that sort of, you know, maybe not so desirable position to be like, hold on a second. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that was part of this study actually ended up really in the weeds was I started looking down, you know, everywhere I would present on this, I would get the question of, okay, so we've got, we got polyploid grains, we've got genome duplications going on. So if we're seeing these malformations, doesn't this mean that we're having this massive proliferation of polyploid evolution? Plants are just duplicating their genomes and they're the ones that survive because polyploids are better. Hmm. And I'm just like, that's kind of a simplistic view of the world. <laughs> but at the same time, um, it's a good question because, yeah. and it's fair because yes, many times a lot of these malformations do correspond with what we see in genome duplications, big grains and, and larger increases in size in spores and pollen can actually be used to infer sometimes genomes, or at least maybe not genome, but actually like the chromosome complement or the hmm. size of, of chromosome there. So that was something that I definitely wanted to address in this. And that was sort of one of the first things I, I started with was hearing that that was what people were asking about is it sort of gives you an idea of where the pulse of sort of scientific thinking in the field is. Yeah. And I'm lucky that I, I had opportunities to sort of present this work a couple of times and get that feedback because right. then I got to think about it a few months and really looked at the literature, but it turns out in this case, that that doesn't seem to be quite as as plausible um, of what's going on, and, and that ended up being because of a number of things. And one of them was, well, if we're talking about you know, there's a lot of hypotheses saying that polyploids do well under stress because many times if you have more genetic uh, 
sort of genes to play with or copies, you can do better. But it doesn't always work that way in extinctions. And it's pretty dang random who does well in a mass extinction, who doesn't. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so one of the things that uh, I was looking at was that with a lot of these times we see these, these malformations, the, the trees that are making them are not necessarily dead or dying, but they're receding. They're becoming less and less common. They're on their way out as they start kicking out these mutations. So what that suggests, and I could be wrong, and maybe I will be, and that would be exciting if I am, um, is that it seems that the forests are really in deep, deep trouble when these things show up. And from our previous research, we found that it even before the trees actually start feeling the stress enough to produce these pollen grains, they're already sterile. Yeah. So by the time you actually, so our lowest end Permian sort of volcanic emissions, ozone weakening scenarios, the trees were sterilized and they were producing what looked like normal pollen. But it wasn't until you ramped up the radiation dosage that you started seeing the malformations kick in. Wow. So that was creepy because when you yeah. do see these things popping up, then you do wonder how bad was it back then? I mean, to see like, again, what we were talking about that time transgressive and that space transgressive sort of nature of the fossil record, the fact that you are getting a frequency that's spiking up noticeably across possibly huge time spans, they must be pretty common yeah. in, in the moment to be capturing the fossil record like that. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, just the law of large numbers and the unlikelihood of becoming a fossil in the first place, the frequency tells you something. Uh, uh, it paints a much deeper picture than I think even surface level familiarity with it tells you. Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> and and yeah. again, you're, you're dealing with gymnosperms, right? But I'm assuming that, you know, pollen exists across all the seed plants, like, what does it look like in angiosperms? What does it look like in different groups of it? You know what I mean? Like I, I could see this being replicated or tested across the board. And then you start thinking of like, Oh crap, what's the dominant players in our system right now? And how are they going to be responding? Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, many, many new doors to follow. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's something that really needs to be looked into. So mm -hmm. the idea we've been using so far as we're using these these pollen grains that go so far back because it gives us a continuous record from the the carboniferous so the pennsylvanian all the way to the present we can look at saccate malformations and some of the work that we did with the modern conifers ended up being really interesting because we wanted to look at do they respond in a phylogenetically or evolutionarily dependent manner so do certain lineages of conifers only produce this type of malformation and if that was the case, eh, it might be a little more, more iffy as, as what we call a proxy or an indicator sure. of stress. But what we found was it's pretty random. Uh, uh, oh. Pretty much most of the conifers we sampled, they, they, produce, they produce different malformation types and, and abundances than others, but they produce them in very low, low amounts and they don't similar or the more closely related species do not uh, generate the same types of malformations um, as each other. Hmm. They can be actually even more dissimilar, the closer related they are, wow. which was very bizarre. Yeah. I mean, that's but, a paper uh, so in and of itself. It, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a weird thing. And, and that hopefully allows us to, to be a little more confident in saying that, well, a lot of sacate producing seed plants are gone. 
Wow. We don't have their living descendants, but we now can say, well, if I see this type of deviation, like you can actually even look at sort of the how the, the Sakai are oriented and how many there are to tell that at least in the work we did, we made a framework um, that was basically based on ontogeny or the, the developmental sequence of everything from meiosis onward. We could tell based on the nature of the malformation, whether the plant got struck during meiosis, possibly one or two, or if it got struck during the tetrad stage before it split up Jeez. or after the tetrad stage, wow. just on morphology. And, and it's not, you know, it's not really rocket science even too, but it just, it was amazing to me, you know, when I put it together, I was like, okay, well, I mean, the information has been out there forever. It's just, we kind of were trying to piece together. Okay. Yeah. This, what kind of framework can we make? Wow. Uh, it's not rocket scientists. Sure. But it's, it's tedious science. It's, it it's is. <laughs> forensic science. Like, did damn, dude. <laughs> Hats yeah. off. Uh, well done to you and your colleagues. So, with that in mind, I mean, this is exciting. You know, it's scary, but this is science, right? We need to understand this stuff because it helps us make better decisions. It helps us understand what's changing in our environment and hopefully catch things before they get to that horrible mass extinction phase, right? So, absolutely. That being said, if people are jazzed up, want to learn more, where do you recommend they go looking to kind of keep a finger on the pulse of not only past work, but work that's going to come out in the future? Sure. Yeah. So, so I have, I'm, I'm pretty active on social media, sort of bombing it with pictures of exotic and weird plants. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll share some plant nerdy stuff on my, a lot of times on my Instagram. Um, so I'm at Jeff Benka on there. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter, I, I like to share the work of colleagues and people just doing really cool and weird science that is related to the deep past. So you can find me pretty much at Jeff Banka at all of those platforms. Excellent. And I'll put up links to save everyone the trouble of trying to write that down while they're driving or showering or whatever. But uh, Jeff, sure. thank you so much. I mean, thanks for the work that you're doing, for the stories you are able to tell, for putting in the time and effort to do all of this. No small task, but uh, for taking the time to talk with us about it. This is awesome, and I really appreciate it anytime you uh, come on to help us geek out about your work. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks so much, Matt. This was really a pleasure to speak with you again. Awesome. Well, you're welcome back anytime, so keep us uh, in the know of when the next great piece of work is coming out. Sure thing. Will do. All right. Cheers. All right. What a fascinating discussion. I thank Dr. Banka for taking time out of his very busy schedule to talk with us. And I hope you took a lot of food for thought from that. It is so amazing to see science sort of set the stage for even more science at this capacity. His work is really admirable. The effort they put in, I can't even start to describe how much effort that is. So kudos to them. But I thank him most for taking the time to talk with us about it. Of course, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And while you're there, consider supporting the show over on Patreon because I literally could not be doing this without the financial support from my patrons. Speaking of which, I have a shout out to the two latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Jillian and Michelle. Both of them signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting all of the kickbacks you can get over at Patreon. And once again, they're helping make this show possible. So thank you to both of them. If you want to support the show in other ways, consider picking up a copy of my book, some of our apparel, or stickers. And all of those show notes are also 
And all of those links are also in the show notes. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Hang in there, stay healthy, and be good to each other. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.